The scripture reading for this morning is from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, just a, a quick reminder of what's happening here in Hebrews. Of course, we remember that the uh, author, who we don't know, who wrote it, uh, wrote to this group of Jewish converts to Christianity in Rome or, or just outside of Rome who were beginning to experience persecution and were tempted to revert back into Judaism um, in order to avoid the persecution that was coming upon Christians. And it's, it's good to be reminded that this wasn't just an academic exercise for them. They weren't kind of dispassionately considering, should I remain a Christian or should I revert back to my Judaism in order to avoid persecution? They were experiencing persecution. They had seen friends imprisoned. They had themselves, perhaps, lost property. They were fearing death to some degree. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12 that they had not yet experienced the kind of bloodshed that would come under Nero. However, it was not far on the horizon. The fire in Rome and Nero's outpouring of of persecution upon Christians was just around the corner, and they were afraid. The author of Hebrews, after demonstrating in chapter 1 the deity of Christ and the superiority of Christ's message, that was chapter 1, then turned in chapter 2, and we saw this beginning last week, to emphasize the humiliation of Christ. Christ becoming a man, Christ bearing sin's curse in order to fulfill our calling that as we saw in Psalm 8 last week, which which pointed in its original context to mankind, ultimately Jesus is the true man who came and fulfilled our calling as people. Well, now here in this passage that we looked at this morning, he, he turns to the first of 17 occurrences in which he will refer to Jesus as our high priest. This will be a key theme that runs throughout the rest of the letter. And he begins here with this emphasis on Jesus as our high priest. And in doing so, he deals with the reality that's facing all of humanity. We will all die. The readers of this letter may have feared death at the hands of Nero, The author wants them to know that whether death comes at the hands of Nero or not, death will come. And whatever their fear of Nero may have been, it paled in comparison to the slavery, to the fear of death, experienced by everyone who dies apart from Christ. The world needs the message of Hebrews. The world needs the message of this part of Hebrews concerning slavery to the fear of of death. We exhaust ourselves trying to avoid the inevitable and distract our minds from that latent fear 
that is present in every human. John Dixon, in an episode on his Undeceptions podcast titled Growing Older, which I highly recommend to you, the whole podcast uh, series is good, Undeceptions, again, is the name of the podcast, John Dixon, the host. In In an episode titled Growing Older, he points out that the global cosmetics market is worth between $300 and $540 billion annually and is expected to grow at a rate of 3 to 7% through the year 2030. And according to the International Society of Aesthetic Surgery, the most common cosmetic surgery for men and second most common for women is eyelid surgery. We're in denial. Uh, Ernest Becker, in his groundbreaking groundbreaking book, The Denial of Death, asserted that our reluctance to face the reality of our mortality is the root cause of everything that is wrong in the world today. We can argue with his conclusions, but even John Calvin recognized that we deny the reality of death in our day-to-day lives when he said this, we are bound fast to the present state of existence and proceed in the affairs of life as if we were to live 2,000 years. We live as if we're never going to die. We live as if we'll never stop breathing. And that's not the reality, no matter how much we try to escape it. Like the first readers of Hebrews, we need to be reminded that no matter what we fear, death will come. And apart from liberation in Christ, we will remain enslaved to the fear of it. So there's three things we're going to see this morning from this passage. First, our slavery to the fear of death. Second, our liberation from the fear of death. And then third, how to prepare for the reality of death. So our slavery, our liberation, and then how to prepare for the reality of death. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do pray that you would help us to face reality. Lord, we live so often running as if we can avoid what is coming. And so I pray, O God, that this morning, by your spirit, through your word, you would help us to face reality, to slow down, to recognize what's going on internally that maybe maybe we don't even realize is there. Because your word tells us that apart from faith in your son, we are enslaved to fear of death. Lord, would you help us find this morning the liberation that is offered in your son? And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so take a look at verse 15 with me. Verse 15, we read this, that Jesus came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So again, every person, every human being since the entrance of sin into the world through Adam and Eve's sin has been enslaved to the fear of death. And different thinkers throughout history, different people who have slowed down long enough to think about the futility of existence, because that is true, have said things like this. Most recently, perhaps Woody Allen said this. Woody Allen said, death is absolutely stupefying in its terror, and it renders anyone's accomplishments meaningless. It makes our lives look as irrelevant as waves breaking on the seashore. Woody Allen. Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy said this, my question that at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man. 
a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? And then in the 3rd century BC, the Greek philosopher Epicurus wrote this, It is possible to provide security against other ills, but as far as death is concerned, we men live in a city without walls. This passage tells us that there is one who holds the power of death, and that is Satan. How do we get there? Well, first, let's step back and ask people like Epicurus and Woody Allen and, and perhaps at a point in his life, Tolstoy, would say, well, you know, the, the, the problem, the problem is just death, death is natural. Death is just the way that it is. The problem since, since Darwin is said to be that we've, we, we just evolved to the point where, where now that scares us. If we hadn't evolved to the point where we are right now, we wouldn't think about death as something that is terrifying. It would just be the way that it is. But, but now we do, and so we just need to learn how to deal with it. Well, the Bible presents a, a better answer. The Bible explains things the way that really comport with reality as we see it. What the Bible says concerning the entrance of sin into the world is that Adam and Eve, when faced with temptation from Satan to to try to become God by taking from the tree of which God said not to eat actually brought death into the world because of their sin. The warning was there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. What flowed out of their eating of the tree and the entrance of sin into the world was the violation of God's perfect shalom. I'm going to recommend a couple books this morning. The first one I want to recommend to you is a book titled, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, the author, Cornelius Plantinga. Plantinga recognizes that when sin entered the world, it brought the violation of God's shalom. His perfect peace. Now, when we think peace, we think absence of conflict. But the biblical idea of shalom has to do with the right integration of all things. So in God's perfect creation, before the entrance of sin into the world, everything was rightly integrated. Mankind was rightly integrated in his relationship with God. Adam and Eve walked together in the cool of the garden with God. Mankind was rightly integrated with one another. Adam and Eve were naked and without shame. Mankind was rightly integrated within himself. Had the capacity to sin, the ability to sin, but was without sin. And mankind was rightly related to and integrated with the creation over which Adam and Eve were to have dominion. The ground was not yet cursed. Work was not yet toil. But then sin entered the world, and God's perfect shalom was violated, as Plantinga says. There was disintegration at every point where things had been rightly integrated. And we long for it to be integrated again. 
The longing that you see, and maybe in your own heart right now, if you're not a Christ follower, or in those of your friends and neighbors and, and family members, that longing for, the, for shalom, even though they wouldn't call it that, that longing for the right integration of all things, even though they may not recognize it as such, is there because it's implanted into the heart of every person by virtue of being created in the image of God. The longing for that right integration, including the integration that would be the reversal of the dissolution that happens within us because of death. That longing is there because we're created in the image of God. The Bible provides the answer. How did sin and death enter the world through our sin? And this text tells us that Satan now holds the power of death. Verse 15 again, to deliver all those through fear of death were subject, I'm sorry, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that Satan has the power of death in an ultimate, supreme sense. If you remember the book of Job in the Old Testament, you remember that everything that Satan did to afflict Job and his family was by permission of God. God is sovereign. There are all kinds of things that we can wrestle with concerning the message of Job and the sovereignty of God in the face of human suffering that we just don't have time to deal with this morning. But the Bible presents us with a, with a God who is sovereign. Nothing happens apart from his will. The Bible also presents us with people who are responsible for their actions, who have real agency in the world, who do things for which they are responsible and will held, be held accountable. And the Bible also, again, pictures us for us a world that is disintegrated and broken down. And so sickness happens. And yet at the same time, there is the devil who holds the power of death. It's a club in his hand nonetheless. In 1 John 3.19, John says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So Satan has this club that is death in his hand. It's in his hand because of our sin and the entrance of sin and death into the world. He has a fierce grip on it. And in our heart of hearts, we're terrified of it. So we move secondly to our liberation from the fear of death the apostle, uh, the author of Hebrews tells us in this passage that the death of Jesus delivers us from the fear of death. It's by Jesus' death that we find deliverance from our fear of death. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me again. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Our death, our deliverance from fear of death is accomplished by the death of Jesus Christ. There's been this question that if you're reading the Bible for the very first time, if you know nothing about Christianity, you know nothing about Jesus, you've, you've only been given a Bible and you begin to read it. And you read Genesis, and, and, and you read about the entrance of sin into the world, and, and then you read about the curse that God pronounced upon the serpent. Where he said in Genesis 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And if you're reading that for the very first time, knowing nothing else about the Bible, you would be left asking the question, who is this offspring? Who is this seed? Who is this one that will crush the head of the serpent? And as you make your way through the Bible, you would find time and time again that you've not yet found the answer that you've not yet been introduced to who that person is. You find that there are hints. There are ways in which the Bible is pointing forward throughout the Old Testament to who that person will be. But it's not until you get to the New Testament that you find out who the seed is, who the offspring of the woman is. Jesus, son of Mary, son of God. The author of Hebrews tells us, again, in chapter 1, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the divine one. He is God. And yet again, here in chapter 2, he became man. This is one of, of several passages in the Bible in, uh, here in chapter 2, verses 14 to 18, that point to the incarnation. That Jesus Christ, fully God, became fully man. He took on flesh. He went to the cross to bear the curse in our place. By his death, the head of the serpent was crushed. The club that is death was taken from his hands. We will still die physically. We will. But we will not die eternally if your hope is in Jesus. That's because the death of Jesus not only, not only takes the club that is death out of the hand of Satan, but actually atones for our sin before God. This word here in verse 17, propitiation, is such an important word. Take a look with me again at verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Let's step back and talk about the high priest aspect of who Jesus is for just a second. Jesus became man to represent us before God. The high priest in the Old Testament represented the people before God. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the most holy place. He would have on him a golden ephod. And on that ephod, there was 12 stones. Each stone had a name, the name of the 12 tribes of Israel. He was going into the very presence of God in order to represent the people before God. That was the high priest in the Old Testament. Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus stands before God, representing, even now interceding for all who are his own. But he became man to atone for our sins. The high priest in the Old Testament took the blood of an animal with him because blood had to be shed for sin to be forgiven. But every year on the Day of Atonement, the same offering had to be made because the blood of bulls and goats was not sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God and make atonement for the sins of the people. And not only that, but that high priest himself was a sinful person. He had to take blood in order to atone for his own sin before atoning for the sin of the people. And then he would die because he was human. He could not faithfully and forever live to intercede for the people of God. But Jesus, this text tells us, is the high priest who did and who does. He did 
by his own blood. Go not into the, the, the earthly replica, if you will, but the heavenly reality of the temple into the very presence of God, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood to propitiate God. Meaning to completely satisfy God's wrath. To absorb it all in our place. So that there is nothing of the wrath of God left over for those who have put their trust in Jesus for their salvation. God's wrath is pictured in the Old Testament as a cup that's fomenting. And Jesus drank it on the cross. And there's not a drop left in the cup. That's what it means for Jesus to propitiate God, to make full atonement for us, to satisfy completely the wrath of God. His work on your behalf is what liberates you from fear of death. The, the one thing, the one thing that we should fear above all is standing before a holy God as the sinful people that we are without any recourse, without anything to plead, without any way to say to God, I did my best and have that be sufficient. Look at the good things I did and have that be enough. The, the one thing that we should fear above all else is standing before God without someone else having represented us. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is your representative. He is the one who became man. He took on flesh. He suffered and he died in order to not only, not merely defeat Satan, but more importantly, to satisfy God's wrath on sin. So, given that that is true, given that we can find through faith in Christ liberation from the slavery to fear of death that we all experience, how do we live? How do we, third, prepare for the reality of our death? And I think the first thing to do is accept the reality of it. Tim Keller recently went to be with the Lord. He, he told a story in an interview that I, that I saw um, he was diagnosed a decade or more ago with um, thyroid cancer. At that point, it, it really sent him into a, a real kind of tailspin, tail, tailspin emotionally and, and uh, spiritually. He went back and read a book that I think he had said he had read before um, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he came to a place through that battle with thyroid cancer and what was going on internally of real, of real peace and rest in Jesus. And then he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And he was told, there's no, there's no healing from this. This is terminal. You will die of this. And he said in that interview that I saw, I realized that I wasn't as ready as I thought I was. Even though God had used my experience with thyroid cancer to prepare me, I realized I wasn't as prepared as I thought I was. And he said this journey, now that he was on, dealing with pancreatic cancer, was further preparation. He didn't see it as a step back. 
He saw it as part of what God was doing to prepare him for that day that would come. I think there's such wisdom in what the psalmists say in places like Psalm 39, 4, and 5. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. That might not be your go-to verse for meditating. Right? It might not be your life verse. I'm not saying you should make it your life verse. But I'm saying there's profound wisdom in simply meditating on the reality of death. I love that. Oh, Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. God, I live in your world. I live under your sovereign care. The, the number of days appointed for me were written in your book before one of them came to pass. This is the hope that we can rest in. So we can say with Psalm 90 verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Second book I want to recommend to you is a book edited by Nancy Guthrie titled, A Love That Will Not Let Me Go, Facing Death with Courageous Confidence in God. And we'll make sure these are um, in the uh, Grace Weekly that goes out by email this week. <clears throat> Nancy Guthrie's book is, is simply a series of, of excerpts from sermons or, uh, or interviews or, or talks or chapters of books um, from pastors, from faithful sufferers throughout the ages, everyone from... Uh, Martin Luther to Martin Lloyd-Jones, Michael Horton to Tim Keller to Joni Erickson, John Erickson Tata. Um, J.I. Packer is featured in this as well. And, and there, there's an excerpt that I want to read to remind us of this need to just accept the reality as part of our preparation. Packer writes this, in every century until our own, that's a pretty big statement, in every century until our own, Christians saw this life as a preparation for eternity. Medievals, Puritans, and later evangelicals thought and wrote much about the art of dying well. And they urged that all of life should be seen as preparation for leaving it behind. So how do you prepare? First, accept the reality of it. Meditate on the reality of it and the wisdom that's contained in Scripture as you do so. But then secondly, receive Christ's help. Take a look at verse 18. Verse 18, for he, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You know, there's another place in Hebrews where we'll talk about Jesus being tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. But here, I think the temptation, given the context, is particularly on that temptation to act as though we're still enslaved to the fear of death. Jesus had to wrestle in the Garden of Gethsemane with temptation, to fear of death, and he overcame. He went to the cross knowing full well that, the, that, the, that, the, that what he would bear in our place was greater than we could ever imagine. C.S. Lewis somewhere talks about, it's in mere Christianity, talks about the fact that this idea of Jesus being tempted in every way and yet without sin, Jesus the sinless one, being tempted, we might be tempted to say, well, he doesn't get it. Like, we, he's, he's without sin. We're sinners. Temptation hits us different than it hit him. 
Lewis said in Mere Christianity, you know, when you're, when you're standing up and the wind is blowing hard against you, and the you know, wind just continues to blow harder and harder and harder, at some point you may lay down. If you were to remain standing, that wind speed would continue to increase and blow, and you'd feel it all the more. And that's what it was like for Jesus to endure temptation without sin. He never laid down. As the wind of temptation blew harder and harder and harder, every single one of us at some point lays down. We give in. We succumb. Jesus never did. He felt the full force of temptation in a way that we never will, including, coming back to context here, the temptation to despair, to lose hope in the face of death. Jesus endured. And he lives now to provide help. This is present tense stuff the author of Hebrews is talking about. Jesus now helps us. Because he suffered then, he is able now to help the children of Abraham, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation, receive his help. Another theme throughout Hebrews, we saw it last week, we'll see it again. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look to him and receive his help. And then third, and finally, anchor your hope in him. Anchor your hope in him. What does it mean to be a people whose hope is anchored in heaven? It means we're a people whose hope is centered on Jesus. Because that's where Jesus is, at the right hand of the Father. He will return from there one day. You will be raised anew, the resurrection body. And therefore, now you can rest. I want to read a quote from Packer again, just as a reminder and encouragement to us. For Christians, the terror of physical death is abolished, though the unpleasantness of dying remains. Jesus, their risen Savior, has himself passed through a more traumatic death than any Christian will ever have to face. And he now lives to support his servants as they move out of this world to the place he has prepared for them in the next world. Christians should view their own forthcoming death as an appointment in Jesus' calendar that he will be faithful to keep. There's so much comfort just in that simple statement. My life now, as we, as we sang earlier, is hidden with Christ in God. Jesus will never, ever, ever forget me because by grace I have been united to him. So much so that my very life is hidden in him. And on that day in which he appointed me to die, he will be faithful to be present to usher me through death's door. That's the hope that every Christian can have. When held to, we'll abolish slavery to the fear of death. We won't succumb to that temptation anymore. Death still remains unpleasant scary, but we need not be enslaved to it. On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath we deserve. For the Christian, death is not the end. Death is just the end of the beginning. The best is yet to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to take this truth to heart, that your son Jesus made full satisfaction through his 
life and death for our sin. He took the full brunt of your wrath in our place. Lord, help us to rest in the confidence that there is nothing of your wrath left over for us. And therefore, though we will die physically at a day that feels all too soon, we do have the promise of life forever in your presence, experiencing a joy beyond our imagining. Lord, help us to live with that hope. In Jesus' name, amen.